This is a Federal News Network podcast. The American Federation of Government Employees returns to the negotiating table with Veterans Affairs officials for the largest union contract in the federal government. AFGE wants to resolve persistent points of disagreement. The union wants VA to put employees on performance improvement plans before imposing discipline. It also wants to ensure Title 38 medical employees receive an equal share of performance-based awards and incentives. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman spoke with the supervisory attorney for AFGE's VA counsel, Thomas Dargan. So the 2011 contract initially had a three-year term, and the duration of that contract continued to roll over from year to year if neither party gave notice to reopen it. So if there's a contract that's working for both parties, it stays in effect. And so that happened year after year from 2014, after that initial three-year term, up until 2017. And during the Trump administration, the VA gave notice to reopen and renegotiate our contract. We had a number of disputes about those negotiations that were resolved through a settlement last year, and the parties agreed to return to the table um, starting this year for a limited reopener of 12 articles. Okay. And understandably, tone from VA management is going to be different given any administration here. So in general terms, how has the tone been from VA management and has there been a significant change in that tone? The tone has been somewhat better. You know, the Biden administration, President Biden himself executed several executive orders early in his administration, resetting the federal government's policy with regard to labor unions and collective bargaining, encouraging agencies to strengthen those collective bargaining rights and expand them when possible and to empower workers to form and join unions. So much different uh, approach than we saw in the last administration. But Ultimately, what happens at the table is really what matters. Those are great policy principles and guidance coming out from the White House and even the Office of Personnel Management, OPM. But the devil's really in the details, right? So the change that we want to see needs to come in the form of written proposals from the agency that they are prepared to live with going forward. And that's been a slower shift than uh, the tone coming out of the White House. It's not quite as sharp a turn as you might hope or expect. That's not quite what we're seeing at the bargaining table right now. Okay, well, let's get into those details that you mentioned here. I understand that AFGE is looking at a handful of articles as part of these negotiations specifically at this point. One of them revolves around discipline for VA employees. Can you tell me a little bit more about where the current state of play is on that particular article? Sure, absolutely. So for background, um, we've got 12 articles on the table. Each side was permitted to pick up to six to renegotiate, and discipline is one of the articles that the VA chose to reopen. It kind of goes hand in hand with another article called performance appraisal. These are the two articles that dictate how employees are evaluated and reviewed, how their performance is appraised from month to month and year to year, and what happens when an employee is accused of misconduct or unacceptable performance. The VA, over the last few years, we've been engaged in disputes through the grievance process about these articles because of a law that came into effect during the Trump administration called the VA Accountability and Whistleblower Protection Act. 
President Trump signed that into law in June of 2017. And ever since then, uh, including up until a mediation I was in earlier today, we've been fighting about what that law means in the context of our collective bargaining agreement. And so at the table, we've seen VA advance proposals in Article 14 and Article 27 that will make it easier to suspend, demote, or fire employees. So shortening the timeframes and the opportunities they have to defend themselves with the assistance of union representatives before the department takes disciplinary action against them. And as far as AFGE's position on this, I imagine the counterproposal is for VA employees in this kind of scenario to have, say, a performance improvement plan before uh, disciplinary action moves forward. That's exactly right. So if the VA believes that an employee is not performing, so they aren't meeting the elements or the standards of their job, they should receive notice and an opportunity to improve their performance. The data shows, data we've gotten from VA, that when employees are given an opportunity to improve their performance, they do. People are able to receive additional training or mentorship. They have a chance to sit down with a coach or perhaps a supervisor they've had all along and figure out ways to be able to not only meet the standards of their job, but exceed them, become excellent performers and move on and continue to deliver the best healthcare and services to veterans. So you're right, AFGE wants to maintain those procedures in our contract and make sure that employees have due process and union representation if and when they find themselves in these situations. Let's talk a little bit more about performance awards as it pertains to these negotiations. I understand AFGE's Priority here is for these awards to be equitable across the VA workforce. Tell me a little bit more about where things stand. Sure. So Article 16 on awards is one that the union chose to reopen. We, we've we heard a lot from employees in the field about how unfair and inconsistent and inequitable the calculation and distribution of awards can be at the department. If you're performing exceptionally and the VA determines that they're going to provide awards, that should be done fairly right? Managers shouldn't be picking and choosing their favorite employees and only rewarding them. Or managers shouldn't be the ones receiving awards for the hard work done by frontline employees that we represent. Especially during the pandemic, we saw employees who were performing duties related to COVID-19 who might receive an award and then the person next to them didn't. So for example, everyone here is working very hard, but the nurses who are performing bedside services for veterans in COVID units, if they're receiving an award, we should be looking at the housekeepers and the EMS staff who are cleaning those units, right, on an hourly and daily basis, keeping everyone safe. Those folks should be eligible for awards as well. We've heard from VA they want to maintain maximum discretion. They want the maximum amount of flexibility to determine who gets an award and how much They want that discretion to really be unreviewable and unchecked from the collective bargaining agreement. We've requested data from the VA, and it shows that our employees are not getting a fair share of awards that are distributed to VA employees. We see managers receiving a higher percentage of the overall awards than there are management positions at VA, and we want to change that. The status quo is not working. It's striking to hear you say that, particularly now that there have been so many congressional hearings with VA over its need to hire more and more, especially within the VHA. From a staffing standpoint, how do you see this as an urgent priority for the VA to get this right? 
we hear just time and time again that employees are leaving for the private sector because the pay is not competitive enough in the federal sector. They're able to work at a hospital down the street and make more money and work fewer hours than they are at the VA. But employees tell us they love the mission of the VA. They love caring for veterans. So when VA has the ability to supplement salaries through awards, for example, we have an obligation to make sure that's done fairly. People who are delivering excellent services deserve to be considered for awards given to employees who are performing excellent services. Thomas Dargan, supervisory attorney for AFGE's Veterans Affairs Council, speaking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader, and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most is being somebody that throughout our career has, you know, been at the highest levels and all. But, I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, and uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League play- Baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had wadded tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, uh, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was I think my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood, and I and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind that that what we say and do. especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that 
that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do, where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I, I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so, I, you know, I think my, my maturity allowed me to then shift and focus more on the people than, than so much on results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. That's, that was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney, but, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi- historical to current uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, 
Think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.